It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello everyone, I'm John Elledge and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast. If you've been listening to this for a while, then you might remember an episode we did last year with a guy called Jeff Wood. Uh, he's an American, he's based in San Francisco, where he runs a consultancy and multimedia group called The Overhead Wire. Uh, so as I say, he does transport consultancy, he runs a thing called Streets Blog, and he does a podcast called Talking Headways. Uh, so we decided um, at, a, at a conference where we were kind of hanging out in, in May last year, we decided we'd do a couple of, of crossover episodes where we'd, we, uh, where we, you know, first of all, uh, I would interview Jeff about, you know, how transit works in the United States. That's the episode we did last year. And then at some point in the future, he'd, he'd, uh, he'd return the favour and he'd interview me about, about, you know, cities and transport and associated issues here in the UK. And, and, you know, that's what we, that's what we did. As I said, we put out the first one last year. Uh, we went out on both his podcast and mine. And then, uh, I can't remember quite if it was late 2017 or early 2018, but we recorded the second one in which, in which Jeff asked me a bunch of questions and, uh, and, and Jeff put it out. And I, I haven't got around to that yet. Um, and there's a reason for that. And it's, the sound quality of the interview you're about to hear is really, it's really, really not great. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, it was recorded via Skype with me kind of chatting away on my laptop uh, to, to Jeff in, in, over in San Francisco. And the first, the first section of it, I'm sat in the New Statesman's fairly noisy office. Uh, so uh, you can hear a lot of typing. You can hear a bit of chat in the background. At one point, my colleague Anusha Kellyan is, is being quite angry at someone uh which we, we were trying to work out what that could be but you know these months on we've no idea uh so eventually jeff said that this isn't this isn't working can you can you find somewhere quieter and all the rooms were busy so i ended up doing a, a bit in a stairwell um at that point the sound quality got got really bad and it sounds like i'm at the bottom of um of some kind of submarine vessel uh and and you know so eventually i kind of smiled sweetly at my boss helen lewis and asked if i could use her office and she kindly let me so it does it does slightly improve as it goes along but this is this is all an unnecessary uh, unnecessarily long explanation of of why the why firstly it's taken me quite a while to put this out uh when when jeff put it out months ago and and secondly you know why why the quality is not amazing but you know what the hell? This this is the second crossover episode of Skylines and Talking Headways, and this time 
Jeff Wood of the Overhead Wire interviews me about cities and transport and other associated issues here in the UK. Um, John Illich, welcome to the Talking Headways podcast. Hello, it's good to be back. Yeah, welcome back. It's uh, it's the second one, and, and I, I like the title that you put on it, Transatlantic. That was good. That's been that's been bothering me because I don't really want to do. I can't think of another kind of uh, Atlantic-based <laughs> pun. I'm, it's going it's to be called something dreadful, like the special relationship or something this time. I don't know. I'll come up with something. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I just think, I was thinking of a Death Cab for Cutie uh, album uh, title uh, when you did that one, so maybe I had more positive vibes on mine. <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't know the album, I'm afraid. So it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> you, sh- you should get that one. It's good. Well, check it out. Uh, so so, uh, so last time you got you interviewed me, and uh, I guess now it's my turn to ask questions. Are you okay with that? Yeah, that that works for me. That means I didn't have to do much of the preparation for this. I can just talk at you. So that, that works for me very well. <laughs> Good. Well, so last time I guess we talked a lot about transit in the United States and those types of things, and, and I know that you're a huge train nerd from listening to the Citymetric podcast. Um, and I, but first, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about cities. Um, what, what can you tell us about cities that, that aren't London? So there is uh, a, a, a sort of oddity to to the UK's kind of urban economy. There is this sort of general pattern you find in most developed countries, where the second city will be you know kind of half the size of the first city, and it will be the next richest, and the third city will be the next. Generally speaking, the kind of there will be a correlation between size and productivity, right? And and you can see that in 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 the United States, where like you know. Obviously, like New York and, and San Francisco are, the, are two of the big ones, but you know also like LA and Chicago and Boston are all, and Houston, all number among both the, the largest cities and and the most economically uh, productive. In in the UK or specifically in England, we don't really fit that pattern. Actually, outside London, a lot of our cities fall below the national average of productivity, and nobody's been quite sure why. And this has been uh, a problem for, for decades, literally decades, uh, where it, it, there isn't kind of an obvious... I mean, Manchester's kind of emerging a little bit now, but there has not historically been a sort of obvious second city that is an alternative place that, you know, if you just graduated university, you could go to and get a graduate career in media or finance or whatever it is. And generally speaking, most of our cities, most of our big secondary cities have kind of been seen as bywords for post-industrial decline of the sort that you guys have in places like Ohio and I think that has that has had a knock-on effect in terms of our economy it means we have a very geographically imbalanced economy where London is so important to the British economy uh, and and Scotland's kind of a bit different but within England and Wales outside London there is a big drop-off in terms of incomes and productivity and you know if we could if we could work out how to fix that if we could work out how to get uh, all, all our other sort of big cities playing on the same kind of level that, that similar cities in France or Germany or Italy or the United States are, then that would go a long way to solving a lot of our economic problems. I think. So, what are the, some of the what are the the bigger cities outside of London? I mean, you have you have Birmingham, you have uh, Manchester and Liverpool. Um, I'm sure there's some others. Yeah, um, I mean, those are, those are those are some of them. Um, it gets complicated because Birmingham is 
it, it depends how you define it. Birm Birmingham is also part of the West Midlands conurbation, which contains two other cities, Wolverhampton and Coventry, plus a bunch of suburbs that that aren't counted as cities. So, it's, is that one? Is that one thing? Is that three things? Is that seven boroughs? It's you know, it, you run into these definitional problems. But but the big ones are, are Birmingham slash the West Midlands, Manchester. Uh, Liverpool to an extent, a city called Leeds is kind of the biggest city in Yorkshire, uh, that's about a million people, but again it kind of rewrites you under these definition problems, and, and uh, Newcastle, Bristol, Sheffield, and then uh, outside England the big ones to consider are, are Edinburgh is the capital of Scotland, and it's slightly overshadowed by its much larger neighbour Glasgow, uh, and Cardiff is the, the capital of Wales, Belfast the capital of, of Northern Ireland, but those are those are smaller cities, but they're kind of important as governmental centres. Yeah, and you mentioned kind of the separation of places in terms of how you define them, you know, whether this city is this large or, or not so large based on how many places you actually count as part of the city. Um, you know, since the United States is so large and we have cities like Denver, which are somewhat in the middle of nowhere compared to other places, um, you know, how, do, how does that work in terms of them kind of bleeding into each other because of proximity? It's, yeah, I mean, it's like, obviously we're a much, much smaller country. So, but it, this is, this has historically been a, a huge thing. If you look so much of the, the, the population of England is concentrated in a few regions. So, you mentioned like Liverpool and Manchester as two of the cities that, that your listeners are most likely to heard of. They're only 30 miles apart. They're right next to each other. They do kind of bleed into each other. And if you go in different directions from Manchester, within another 30 miles, you'll get to Sheffield and you'll get to Leeds. And there is still some separation between them. Uh, but but there's you know these four cities and the smaller cities that are in their hinterlands are kind of all very, very close together in American terms. Um, it's probably, I, I'm, I'm plucking this out of the air, so this might not be literally true, but I suspect this is an area of land about the size of somewhere like Rhode Island. It's a really small patch of land in American terms, and it contains four of, of England's biggest cities. And you get similar, and we've already talked about them, the way the West Midlands conurbation, there's a couple of places bleeding into each other. In the northeast, you've got uh, Newcastle, Sunderland, Middlesbrough, all kind of in a reasonably here in area. Edinburgh and Glasgow are within about 50 miles of each other up in Scotland. So, so our, it, it, we, this does kind of have a knock-on effect in terms of practical policy, because what area are you planning for? Are you planning for the municipality? Are you planning for the metropolitan area? Or are you kind of planning for that kind of larger commuter zone where, where people could live in one city and commute to another? And it's, it's sometimes very difficult to kind of make those decisions. Plus, you get places that are, that sh where their interests should be aligned. Like, it should be possible for, for Manchester and Liverpool and Leeds and, and Sheffield to kind of do this united front against London, right? And kind of just make the argument, no, we as a group think we want more investment in this end of the country. But historically, they've not done that. They've kind of, like, bickered amongst themselves. And lately, they had... Well, in 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 the his, historical historically, they hadn't had um, mayors, but but now they do. Is that not all of them? Um, so so yeah, we have just introduced. Okay, actually, I need to step back a bit. One thing that that an American audience needs to understand about the British political system is that we are ludicrously 
over-centralised. Like, you guys obviously have uh, the federal government, you have states, and then you have, like, counties or cities and municipal governments. You know, there's, there's all these kind of le levels of government with different powers enumerated and a certain amount of operational independence, right? A city can raise taxes and so on. Our, our local governments can't do that. There is some. It would be very difficult for, for the government, the national government of Westminster, to get rid of the Scottish or Welsh governments because that would sort of throw up all sort of political problems. But but they can, they can and have abolished individual local authorities for nakedly political reasons. Like the Greater London Council, which which was in charge of metropolitan London between 1965 and 1986, um, the Margaret Thatcher's government just scrapped that because. They thought it was doing all sorts of left-wing things that they didn't approve of, so they just got rid of it. So for the next 14 years, London, a major world city, did not have a government of its own. It had the national government and it had uh, 33 local authorities, but there was no government of London until the election of the first, the first mayor of London, Ken Livingston, in the year in the year 2000. Um, what's happened this year that you referred to is there already were mayors who were kind of elected heads of individual local councils so generally speaking our local councils will, will use a model known as uh, leader and cabinet where like it's, it's basically the sort of equivalent of a parliamentary model so, so they elect local councillors and then the head of the largest party is, is effectively the council leader but it's not, a, it's not a personally elected position a number of councils have for some time since around the year 2000 as well, because it's a Blair government reform, have elected mayors directly. So, so the, the city of Leicester, for example, in, in the East Midlands, that has a mayor. The city of Bristol has a mayor. But the, the recently introduced mayors are a slightly different position, more akin to the mayor of London, where it's kind of an individual figure sat at the head of of what's known as combined authority, which is just a bunch of local councils, a bunch of boroughs or whatever, kind of working together to kind of pool a certain amount of resources. So for the first time, we've seen that in some of the big secondary cities we talked about. So there's now a mayor of Greater Manchester, there's a mayor of the Liverpool city region. Confusingly, there is also a mayor of Liverpool. Those are two different guys from opposite ends of the same political party, so that's fun. Um, and and yeah, a number of a number of the other city regions have also elected mayors for the first time. So, uh, what's something that's ridiculous that's going on in, in, in English cities right now that you well, that you think is ridiculous? Um, at risk of repeating myself, the thing that I find most ridiculous is actually the kind of the lack of control of their own destiny, uh, the the extent to which British cities have historically been. Run as an arm of their service delivery bodies for national government priorities. They don't get to set their own policy. They don't get to set their own taxes. You know, for for example, like the city of Leeds, which I'd mentioned earlier, is depending on how you count between half a million and a million people, but it's one of the biggest cities in in northern England. That is also, I think, the largest conurbation in Europe, which doesn't have any public transport network other than than privately run buses. There's kind of no tram. There's no uh, there's no metro. There are some local trains, but they're not particularly good. It's you know it has it has no no proper public transport system of its own, and it's not been empowered to build one. Like it's it's whenever it's it's had a plan, it's basically had to persuade civil servants in London, many of whom have probably never been to Leeds, that this is the thing they should be spending money on, rather than you know, two dozen other national priorities. And that to me is just absolutely crazy. I just do not see 
the logic of that, except in terms of it makes sense if you think of it in terms of, of empire building within the civil service and people once they've got power they generally don't like to give it up but in terms of developing a city economy or running a, a country along sensible lines, that just seems crazy to me Is that kind of a, a, a part of consternation between you know London and the rest of the country is that London seems to uh, pull a bunch of resources that other cities might not get because of the way that the, the government set up? Yeah, I mean, normal normal people do not think about local government structures uh, as much as I do. <laughs> and normal people also, like there has been historically a thing where if you ask people, do you want to create a new political role, they would say no, they don't want more politicians, people hate politicians. So so attempts, there was a brief attempt in the early 2000s by the Bobby Sullivan Player government to introduce regional governments. Um, and the first one of those is going to be the North East, which is the area around the city of Newcastle and Sunderland, Middlesbrough area, and there's a huge swath of rural territory. And that got voted down overwhelmingly. Because if you ask people, do you want some more politicians, they would generally say, no, we hate politicians. So, so people don't necessarily frame it in these terms. But yeah, there is certainly a bitterness about uh, a sense that London sucks up all the resources, London gets all the best jobs, London gets all the, all the investment. Uh, it is not articulated in, in those terms. Now, if you look at how, how tax is generated and then spent, um, London is kind of actually subsidising the rest of the country because, like, London produces so much tax revenue and it doesn't get to spend at all. Actually, some of that is then spent elsewhere. But, but then you get into an argument about whether, well, is that because London has historically had all this investment in things like, you know, this huge public transport network, this great infrastructure, and that sort of enables them to do that. And actually, if the investment is fairly, maybe that wouldn't be happening. I don't know. So what, what's the... Let, let's go in a, a little bit kind of more focused uh, direction in terms of, like, specific topics. Um, what's what's housing like? And I've seen a lot of articles about, you know, London having the same issues as, uh, you know, New York City's or, or the San Francisco's of the world. But what's housing like in the rest of the country? Another way in which London's dominance is a problem is that when we talk about a national crisis, often what we mean is is a problem in London. So the, the, the housing crisis we tend to talk about is the London affordability problem and the fact that it is now so expensive to not just to buy, but to rent housing in London. It is in that kind of bracket that, that Americans will be familiar with, like San Francisco or New York or Boston, where it's just like absolutely crazy prices. Um, like 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 um, parking lots for individual cars will go for a quarter of a million pounds or more um, because because what you're buying is the land. That's not the problem in much of the country. Um, actually, in in parts of the country, housing is is incredibly affordable. The problem is, if housing is affordable, it's generally a sign that there are no good jobs in the city. Uh, so so really, kind of, we have two different housing markets. Uh, either you can go somewhere where you can get a really uh, a well-paying job, but you can't afford a house, or you can go somewhere where the housing is very affordable, but a lot of industries just aren't active there. So it's we we, we do need to be like even in even in those latter parts of the country, often there is kind of a housing crisis in terms of a lot of the housing will be quite poor quality because that hasn't had, because it isn't expensive, so there hasn't been the incentive to invest in it and so on. But nonetheless, the supply crisis is kind of specific to to the more economically vibrant bits of the country, like London, Oxford, Cambridge, uh, Bristol is also at that end. 
and other parts of the country are much, much cheaper. But they have very, very different problems. What's council housing? Uh, council housing is uh, housing that's owned by the council, the municipality. So it's I don't know I don't know what the it's, the projects I guess is the equivalent. Um, Affordable and, housing. Yeah, yeah. It's and you know some of it is in some of the, some of the housing built as council housing is is very good quality. Some of it is of, of particularly terrible quality, and. It's since since the 1980s, another Thatcher era reform that was introduced was uh, what's known as the right to buy, where if you were living in a council house, you had a legal right to buy it from the council at a huge discount of you know 20, 30 percent of its market value. Uh, sorry, off off its market value, not off its market value. So you'd be paying 70 or 80 percent. Um, and this was a nakedly political move by the Thatcher government because people who lived in council housing tended to vote Labour. People who own their own homes tended to vote conservative. So it was purely a way of getting uh, council tenants to switch sides. And it was very, very effective for that. A lot of people uh, did very well out of that policy and liked it a great deal. But because councils weren't allowed to reinvest the proceeds in new housing, that meant that fast forward 30 years, and now we have a huge affordable housing crisis, and councils just don't have the housing stock to go around anymore. So what they do with that money then? Because I mean, it seems it, I, I would guess that it generated a ton of funds. Because if you're selling off all of your assets, you have a pile of money. It got. Um, I mean, it, a lot of it got sucked up to national government. As, as we were talking about earlier, actually, councils don't have all that much control over their their finances. Money will generally get sucked up to the national treasury and then redistributed to councils based on, on the national formula. So the fact that a council has has in some way earned some money does not mean it gets to keep it. Oh, that's crazy. I think people here would go nuts <laughs> if money just disappeared like that. Well, I mean, I guess it's coming back in some form or fashion, but it's uh, it's kind of an interesting issue that pops up. Um, and then I've talked to folks about this before, but how does like uh, buying and purchasing housing work? It's, it's not quite the same as uh, where you, you buy a house and you own the land, you know, pretty much free and clear. I think in the UK it has something, it's it's basically you're doing a long-term land lease. Is that how it works? Um, uh, we're at the edge. Some of, places. Uh, we're at the edge of my knowledge. It depends what you buy. Mm. Um, I think we do have, we do have two different uh, tenures. There's, there's uh, leasehold and freehold. So I own my flat, my wife and I own our flat under under leasehold because it is part of one of those council estates they talked about that that got sold off, uh, privatised effectively under right to buy. Um, a third of what, a, a, something like a third of the flats sold under right to buy are now privately rented, by the way. So they're still rented housing, it's just they're now owned by landlords rather than councils, which is, you know, obviously a terrible thing. But anyway, um, what what leasehold means is that I think we signed a 99-year lease when we bought. So um, at some point, the land kind of reverts to to the, the uh, owner of the estate. Um, but I think I'm right in saying that if you own like a detached property, um, you own the land as well, I think. There is also, I mean, you can never be sure there isn't something weird going on where it's like, it turns out the Queen secretly owns everything, including your internal organs, because this we live in a stupid country. Um, but... Um, but I think if you own if you own property that sits in its own land, you own the land too, and that's a freehold. Yeah, interesting. Okay, let's talk about transport. Um, what's what's going on with uh, Oxford Street? 
So, so yeah, Oxford Street is the main shopping street in London. Uh, so if anyone who's, who's been to London has probably been there, for which I can only apologise. Um, and despite being the busiest commercial avenue in Europe, uh, it's also an incredibly congested uh, street in terms of traffic. It used to have something crazy, like 20 or 30 different bus routes run down there. Um, and you've got to remember, like, London... Like we all talk, about, we talk about the tube the whole time, but actually one of the ways that London's transport is exceptional, I think, is that is the number and variety of its bus routes. There is nowhere in Greater London that you'll be more than about half a mile from a reasonably frequent bus route. Um, and obviously, London is uh, Oxford Street is a fairly major commercial avenue, and it's also a fairly important east-west route in, in the West End. So, an enormous number of buses go down there, as long as as well as taxis and also you know delivery vehicles and so on. So it's been a long-term ambition for literally decades, I think, to to, uh, to pedestrianise Oxford Street and get that traffic off. Transport for London, the, tra- the Transit Authority, has been gradually, um, quietly, for, for a couple of years now, been diverting a lot of those buses away. So either they will turn, instead of like running the length of Oxford Street before terminating, they will terminate at the end they enter in. Or they'll be diverted into a back street. Or in a couple of cases, they're going to be diverted much more radically than that. And by doing this slowly over a period of a couple of years, um, they've been able to start pulling out those bus routes to the point where they've now turned around and said, okay, we're going to pedestrianise it by, I think, in stages by, by 2020. So the first stage is going to be the sort of western half of the street, which runs from uh, Oxford Circus to Marble Arch. Um, and they're just going to pull out all the traffic raise the raise the, the road surface to be level with pavements and make it much more like, I don't know if people are familiar with um, Las Ramblas in Barcelona, which is uh, the main commercial artery there, which is pedestrianised for its length, and that's about a mile. And I think the idea is to kind of make it like that, but with, with worse weather. <laughs> with, with worse weather? With worse weather. We don't have Barcelona's climate here, sadly. But, but it's the same kind of principle in terms of urban design. Well, some might argue that Barcelona is too hot. Um, yeah, but some are wrong. Um, <laughs> actually, so no, the, 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 actually, it's not that... Um, some, something that people often don't realise if they've only seen London in, in Christmas movies or whatever is it, it doesn't often snow here. It's not. It doesn't get particularly cold in winter. We have a very mild climate. Um, but we have the problem with the British climate is actually cloud cover. It's that it's cloudy for something insane like three hundred days a year. Um, so we don't get. It, it's it's only every couple of years we get a proper summer where we get sort of reliable hot temperatures for more than a couple of days. And it's only every couple of years we get sort of those kind of snowy winters you've seen in half a dozen Christmas movies set in London. And I just I would really like to live a place where the seasons do what they're supposed to do. And you know, where we, just where the weather looks like it told me it would in the picture books I read as a small child, rather than just like the weather in London all year round just being grey and drizzly. That's the problem. It's not that it's cold; it's that it's just grey. So you want, so you want seasons, basically that you've yeah. heard of. Yeah, I would uh, love to live somewhere. With, I would love to live somewhere with seasons. Yeah, we don't, we don't have seasons here. Like you know, everywhere else on the planet gets seasons. You know, New York gets seasons. Yeah, uh, Madrid gets seasons. Tehran gets seasons, but not, not here. We just kind of have, you know, London grey. So. Well, San Francisco doesn't really have seasons either. I guess we have permafall. That's what we call it. Because the fog comes in so much, um, and Texas doesn't really have seasons either. It's either it's either 
fallish or really hot. <laughs> that does sound that does sound an improvement on what we've got now. Actually, an, uh, an aunt of mine who grew up in uh, not far from me in outer London uh, lived in Texas for fifteen years and misses it terribly because she loved the weather so. But now she lives in now she lives in Aberdeenshire, which is near Scotland, which is, in Scotland, which is the opposite extreme. So you know, strange life choices people make in the oil industry. For sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's how it works. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What, uh, what is going on with Uber's permits in London? It seems like I've seen a lot of news about them, about London pulling the permits because of, I guess, shady operating practices. But it's not something I think that I've seen a ton of news about. But it is some place that Uber is actually, I think, making money from their business. So they don't really want to leave like they did Austin because Austin's such a small fry and the whole thing that they don't really care. But yeah, how does all that work? This is, as, as I understand it, I, I thought when, so, so what was announced was that basically Uber was going to be banned from London, but it had time to appeal. And that, in that appeals process, and he gave it three weeks plus the length of the actual process itself or something. So, so effectively, there was an announcement saying Uber was going to be banned, but it was not in fact banned. At which point there was a lot of hysterical stuff about like the London Mayor Sadiq Khan um, removing a service that's useful to Londoners or being anti-business or whatever, you know, a lot of that kind of hysterical commentary. I thought this was quite a clever move on, on the part of Transport for London, where it was an attempt to to kind of leverage their, their regulatory muscle. Because obviously, you know, it is part of the Transport Authority's job to kind of make sure that someone providing private cars is a fit and proper company for doing that. And I, I suspected that firstly, they never thought Uber would be banned. They thought they would go to, it, this would be a good way of like getting Uber to take regulation seriously. And and secondly, I suspected there was an awareness that as you, as you pointed out yourself, London is a big enough and profitable enough market to Uber that it had the muscle to do that in a way most cities couldn't. So I sort of thought the London authorities were, were doing the world a favour there by kind of making clear that Uber, in fact, was subject to to regulation in a way that the company had previously been in denial about. I'm not 
entirely sure if that's true. Someone from from the relevant team of TfL denied it to me and just said they would. They just thought they were doing a spot of normal regulation and were genuinely surprised at quite how much attention it got, not just here, but around the world. Like there was press coverage of this. So, so it's possible that I was kind of imputing, uh, imputing more motive to this than, than there actually was. But in practice, as I understand it, what's happened is that after, after pretending it was going to, to play hardball for about a day, Uber did actually come back to the table and say, okay, what do we need to fix here? And that those conversations are still ongoing. So despite, uh, I think it was Michael Wolf, who was a media commentator, did send out a very silly tweet uh, saying how strange it was to be in a city without Uber. It felt like the place was like a ghost town or something. And the entire internet pointing out that Uber was still running in London and that he was feeling a bit mad. Um, despite, <laughs> despite that, you can, you can still get an Uber right now. Um, and I think I think that's unlikely to change. I think the company is is probably a part of London's transport system from here on in, but it will have to cooperate with with the regulator a bit more. And hopefully that will that that will be kind of a useful lesson for it as it expands to other cities. How do people feel about it about Uber generally um, or, or ride hailing? I should say. Um, I mean, they're generally quite pro. It's it's the same thing you see in a lot of cities that you know people find it people get stroppy because they think this thing is useful to me why should i have to care about the welfare of other people kind of thing uh which i think is a fairly fairly universal problem i i don't think it's it's the sort of revolutionary innovation it's been seen as in a lot of cities partly because all jokes aside london transport is actually incredibly good you know so we have one of the best transport systems in the world it's very difficult to find anywhere in london where you don't have a public transport option because of that bus network plus we have we obviously have the tube we have very extensive overground trains so generally speaking london transport is good also we have these things called called uh mini cabs which are ubiquitous which i i know are sort of fairly universal as well but i think again we have them more more prodigiously in london where it's sort of you know on semi-official cabs so it hasn't been the life changer here in the way it has been in a much more sort of car based city like uh, Los Angeles for example but it obviously it is, it is a cheap and convenient option for a lot of people that they got a bit grumpy the idea that they might have to go back to paying more expensive fares but nonetheless I don't think I, I don't think Uber is going to go away I think Uber is here to stay and it will just have to do more to to do I mean, conduct safety checks on its drivers and you know take police inquiries seriously when something goes wrong with one of its drivers and given London's amazing transport system and you know some other cities in in country have have good transport systems as well but you know what's the kind of the buzz around the future of transportation and as it pertains to autonomous vehicles or new modes of transportation i mean you say some of the other cities have have control nowhere has anything on a part of london a couple of cities have have uh, light rail networks in glasgow up in scotland there's a reasonably uh, extensive suburban rail network and they also have a single underground line with the line and weir metro and so on there's a, there's a few things around the place but nowhere has anything on the scale of london so, so it is. So much of our transport debate does end up being about London, because even if you're talking about what we term the national rail network, the vast majority of use of that is in London and its and its hinterland, like the southeastern counties of England. If you live in 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 a town like I know Tunbridge Wells, a fairly pretty town in, in Kent, and you, you work in London, you will not drive to work; you will get the train in. 
but but it's only in this corner of the country that the railway is kind of such a part of life in that way because because the city has grown around it in much of the country people people do like to drive to work so so much of our national debates around public transport is kind of filled through this lens of of quite how london centric investment has historically been the the big the big project that that may or may not happen over the next couple of decades is what we call high speed two uh high speed one is the high speed link connecting london southeast to the channel tunnel um which which arrived i think a good 20 years after the channel tunnel itself because it's just that efficient but high speed two will be a new line from london initially to birmingham and then onwards to to the northern cities which we talked about earlier this gets discussed as if it's as, as a shiny new thing. Like people tend to focus on the high speed aspect of it because that's the sexy bit. Actually, I think it's more of a capacity play because the lines it will be relieving, uh, particularly the West Coast Main Line, which runs from London up towards Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, and beyond to Glasgow, is incredibly crowded. Particularly the stretch from London to to Birmingham. So it's as much about providing extra capacity and relieving that as it is about improving journey times. But it, it has also, it's annoyed a lot of people because it's very difficult to build anything without annoying people. It's a huge amount of money. It's like 30 billion pounds, which is about 40 or 50 billion dollars. Um, and people do kind of wonder whether we might be better off spending that on smaller, more incremental improvements. But also because it kind of fits into this narrative that all the city needs to thrive is, is better ties to London. Which is not, which is probably not a, a long-term way of thinking about the economy, and that's certainly true in, in in Birmingham, which is you know really not that far from from London. Despite the fact for a long time Birmingham was seen as, as the second city, it's only an hour and twenty minutes, I think, from London on the train now. It's really not that far. Yet when I was there for for one of the political conferences in 2016, the Conservative, the ruling Conservative Party conference, all over Birmingham. Uh, there were signs about the importance of investing in HS2 because the authorities there see it as their kind of big chance to, to win more business from London is by basically becoming the place that international banks put their back office services and so on because it is so convenient for London. That's probably not something that, that cities further up the line will be able to do. So there are some questions over whether that's really the, the best use of such a huge amount of public money. Speaking of international issues, what, is, what does Brexit mean for cities? I've seen a lot of articles. Okay, talk about Brexit. It's like, so okay, it's okay, okay. No, it's, 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 I mean, the problem, the problem is we don't know because we don't know what it's going to do to the economy. It's, pretty, it's not looking good, certainly, cutting us off from our, our biggest market. Um, I mean, at an event I attended uh, last year, the, the late great Ben Barber was telling British mayors and, and council leaders that you know this was their chance to to kind of steal back power from national government. Not not just Brexit, but the kind of whole the, the austerity agenda and you know, everything else going on was like you know we're saying it's time cities took control of their own affairs again. The problem here is you know in a very literal sense it's not clear who would be taking control because they do not have the levers of power that, that an average American city does. They don't have the ability to raise their own money or, or pass their own ordinances. They are much more limited in what they can do. So in some ways, like I, th- I think Brexit has woken people up to the need to kind of think more about 
bits of the country that voted for Brexit and that we have possibly been, not possibly, we have definitely been too London-centric as a country. So in, in we're recording this on, on Tuesday the 28th of November. Last week was our annual budget uh, and, and the Chancellor Philip Hammond kind of went out of his way to throw money at transport projects in, in those secondary cities we talked about earlier that have metro mayors. For the first time I can remember, there was no similar commitment to a project in London. It's like there is guaranteed funding for Manchester and Birmingham and Liverpool. And, you know, but London, he just said, we will, we will continue to look at Crossrail 2, which is the next big project in London, which was also cost about £30 billion, to be honest. Um, he said that's, he didn't cancel it, but he, didn't, he also didn't say, oh yes, we will definitely fund this thing. So, so I think Brexit kind of has sharpened minds on, on quite how imbalanced the British economy has become, but I don't see it being a good thing for, for those cities nonetheless, because by and large it'll be the, the cities that have, have struggled in the existing economy that are most likely to be hit by falling out of the single market. Are you excited about Crossrail opening next year? I am. It's been, I mean, Crossrail is, it goes to my mum's house. It's like the line I grew up on. It's going to be part of Crossrail which is a £15 billion project to link uh, heavy rail services on the east and western sides of London. Um, and it's been talked about since I was a kid. I mean, I remember in, in the 90s growing up in, in Gidea Park at the far eastern end of London. I remember there were signs at a local station talking about Crossrail as sort of a possible uh, route and they one day serve that station then. And this was when I was sitting there 14, 15 years old. And now I'm, now I'm looking down the barrel of 40 and it's finally going to happen. So I'm kind of it'll, it'll it'll be useful and it'll be you know it's it's annoying that they've decided to name the bloody thing after the Queen because they're, apart from the fact that I don't like our sort of habit of naming things after royalty, it's pretty creepy to name a railway line in commemoration of someone who isn't dead yet. That's weird. Maybe the whole thing was a gamble that she would be dead by the time it opens. I don't know, but but yeah, I find calling it the Elizabeth Line a little bit weird and creepy, but. I'm, it will be a useful addition to London Transport Network. And then Crossrail 2, is that is that actually going to happen, or is it still in the debate stage and it could, uh, it could go away? It could go either way. I think it probably will, because generally speaking, even if London has to wait longer than it likes, London gets what it wants. And also it's easier to raise extra money from, from the private sector in London because they've got so much money to start with. So businesses did contribute to the first Crossrail. They will probably end up contributing more to the second one. And also, like, we're kind of stuck in a treadmill in this town because we are, because our transport system is so successful, the city is so dependent on it. So if we don't keep expanding capacity, there is this terror that something will break and and our most successful city will stop being so successful. So, so London, generally speaking, has continued to invest in transport. So I imagine Crossrail 2 will probably happen in maybe 20 years' time. It's probably the time scale we're looking at realistically. But it, it will almost certainly be the next project in London, yeah. Do you have a favourite place in England, a city that might not get a lot of attention but you think is fascinating? I don't know if I do. I mean, I spent... Manchester's the one that I, I end up going to the most. I like Manchester a, a huge amount. There's a real kind of... The problem with a lot of cities I kind of alluded to earlier is that they've not been kind of allowed the, the space to kind of flourish and be their own thing. And often there is this kind of sense that they're kind of looking over their shoulder at London 
either kind of glaring at it like, like Liverpool does or, or sort of hoping to get a few quid out of it like Birmingham does. What I like about Manchester is that it really doesn't care what London is doing one way or the other. It's just its, its own place. Um, everyone, there's a huge amount of civic pride there. There's a really developed civic identity around sort of football and music and so on. The joke is that like Manchester was surprised to find it was the second city because as far as it was concerned, it had always been the first. Um, and I, I kind of, I think that's a, I think that's a healthy attitude. You want that kind of civic pride, and it's helped them build their their, their light rail network. Just the, the determination to kind of build the city as it was. I also like you, you said England, but talking about the UK more broadly, I went to Glasgow for the first time a couple of weeks ago, and it's absolutely stunning. And it's it's the largest city in Scotland. Again, it's that sort of place where it's in the post-industrial, where it's going kind to of bounce back to becoming this kind of cultural hub. And it just has a very strong identity. It has a fascinating, tiny underground rail network. It's got a single circular line, which they claim is two lines, but it's really one line that goes in two directions. Um, and it's got some glorious Victorian architecture, some wonderful parks and great museums. I suspect it's not the sort of place that, that people have at the top of their list if they're, if they're coming to the UK for the first time. Um, they're more likely to go down the road to Edinburgh where it's the castle and, and Harry Potter and so on. But if you're, if you're in Scotland, I think Glasgow is definitely worth checking out too. I, um, I had a friend who you mentioned uh, working in the oil industry and living in, in Aberdeen. And uh, my, I had a friend that worked in the oil industry as well, and I went and visited. And it was amazing driving from Aberdeen all the way to the Isle of Skye and back in one weekend. We did a pretty good road trip, and it's pretty amazing up there um, in terms of, you know, just views and, and uh, landscapes and stuff. It's, it's great. Yeah, yeah, they, it's glorious up there. I was going to say, if people get a chance to go outside of London to someplace that's, that's uh, in the north, I'd highly recommend that. It's just beautiful. I mean, I, I would recommend getting out of London, certainly, because... It, as, as London dominates the UK in so many other ways, it also dominates its tourist industry. And, you know, when people do go to London, they tend to go to a few uh, a few relatively small places. They go to Edinburgh, they may go to Oxford or Cambridge or Bath, these kind of little pretty towns. But there is there is always interesting stuff to see in maybe not all the cities, but it's certainly worth going to, to Manchester or Liverpool. And, and the best, you know, some of the best for the countryside is to be found a long way north of London, either in the north of England or up in Scotland. So it's certainly worth kind of exploring a bit further, I think. Well, John Elledge, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank, thank you for having me. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.